I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. everybody. Welcome to the Billboard on Broadway podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Millsoff, features editor at Billboard and Broadway fan extraordinaire here. So in the world of pop music, everyone from labels to artists to fans love the idea of bringing back a classic, whether it's an album paying tribute to a great artist or a cover of a beloved song. The idea of revisiting and maybe updating music that is already considered excellent is pretty irresistible. It's kind of like, how can you lose? Uh, And there are pretty much two ways of going about it. Either you do a very faithful and precise cover or tribute to the classic in question, uh, or you take the opposite approach and try to just completely reinvent it. This happens all the time on Broadway, too. If you listen to the podcast regularly, you hear me introducing lots of shows by talking about how they, in some way, subtly or not, update a musical that's considered a classic of musical theater. Still, I don't think any show I've seen really ever has accomplished reinvention to the degree that the subject of today's episode does. Oklahoma is, as Broadway goes, about as classic as it gets. It's the first ever musical by the iconic duo of Rodgers and Hammerstein, and as such, it really kind of set the template for what the modern musical would be. The story on the surface seems pretty straightforward. It takes place just after the turn of the century in the Western Indian Territory that will soon become the state of Oklahoma, and it tells the story of the cowboy Curly and the farmhand's daughter Lori and their kind of reluctant romance. But as in most of Rodgers and Hammerstein's collaborations, there is a lot more complicated stuff going on beneath the surface. And that's what really rises to the forefront of the new production of Oklahoma on Broadway right now. If you know Oklahoma already, maybe it's from the 1955 movie that starred Gordon McRae, Shirley Jones, and Rod Steiger. Maybe it's more recently from the 1998 London revival that starred uh, nascent star Hugh Jackman uh, that made it onto film as well. But chances are, no matter what previous idea you have of the show, it's nothing like this new production. Performed in the round at the Circle in the Square Theater on Broadway with a score that's totally reorchestrated for a small kind of bluegrass-esque ensemble, Uh, It uses amplification and film in a way that completely recontextualizes some pivotal moments, and it ends up feeling, in, in many ways, both totally true to the original show. The score is just as beautiful as you may remember it with songs like Surrey with the Fringe on top, 
um, and Oklahoma, of course, um, but it also feels completely new thanks to the inventive staging of director Daniel Fish and the really individualistic performances of the actors. It's impossible to look at these characters the way you might have in the past. Crowley is no longer just this sort of aw shucks cowboy. The farmhand Jed Fry is not just this dangerous creep. Ado Anley is not a silly flirt, uh, and Laurie is not just a traditional ingenue. There's a lot to contemplate in the story about the principles our country was founded on, gender dynamics, and a whole lot more to the extent that I was definitely thinking about it for weeks after I saw the show. This week's episode is a little non-traditional too. Uh, first, you will hear my chat with Daniel Kluger, the show's orchestrator, arranger, and music supervisor, and actor Patrick Vale, who plays Judd Fry. And then after a little break, I will talk to Rebecca Naomi Jones, who plays Laurie. Raise my charm too much. Don't look so I'm Patrick Vale, and I play Judd in Oklahoma at Circle in the Square on Broadway. Hi, I'm Daniel Kluker, and I did the arrangements and orchestrations for Oklahoma. Well, so I guess just to start, the this production has been in the works for a while now. It started four years ago um, at Bard College. And I'm curious, you know, the two of you, Patrick and Daniel, you were involved in it from the get-go. Um, what did it look like then as opposed to now, how much has it changed and, and, and what of the original ideas of, of what you wanted it to be has has remained all this time? I feel like you should speak about it since you were part of the, an even earlier oh, version. Yes, there it goes even further, actually, all the way to 2007. Whoa! Daniel Fish was um, asked by Joanna Colitis, who ran the theater program at Bard College, um, to come and direct the spring show. Um, and he said that he would like to do Oklahoma and sort of offhand said that and Joanne said okay and so he directed it with students and um, cast me as Judd and we worked on it then and then eight years later it came down the pike as something that was going to be at Bard Summerscape and so I contacted him saying I wanted to be seen and then he saw me and I got back in it. And so it's, yeah, it's been this sort of 12-year process of development, but really concentrated, I think, in the last four years, really beginning with when Dan came on as well. And, mm -hmm. and how early on in, in your kind of collaboration uh, with Daniel did you talk about the music and, and what central role the, the music would play in, in just how reinvented the show is? Yeah, when he first spoke to me about it, he said, uh, I, did a, I did this production with students previously, and uh, the band was, you can tell me, I wasn't oh, there, yeah. but no, there was, the band was in the middle of the floor, and there was a saw, and uh, uh, the spoons. <laughs> right. Just, and were they not? I didn't were, even notice the spoons. They were local musicians in the area, right? Yeah, local musicians in the area, and bard students, uh -huh. and um, very kind of. It was felt like it was really getting done on the fly, um. right? It, I think it had um, 
really featured a kind of communal, not to say amateur, but mm. um, really accessible musicality that it, you know that the band was made up of normal people playing, mm. or that that's the ethic that he explained to me. Mm-hmm. And then he said, "Do you think that you can do that on a professional level with a fidelity to the music?" that the estate and rights holders would approve of. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? So from the yeah, beginning, yeah. It, 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 uh, it, it wanted to be intimate and uh, feel like a band that, uh, that, that it wasn't an orchestra. And, mm-hmm. and that was really different from the typical ways you'd think of a, a Broadway sound. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm actually, from a very music nerdy point of view, I'm really curious about the estate approval end of sure. things because they're are some songs that, you know, sound very much like the original, but just, you know, kind of different arrangements. And there are others, I'm thinking particularly of the music for the ballet, that just feels like completely reinvented. And I, I've like gone back down a YouTube spiral after seeing the show at okay. the mm-hmm. clips from the original. And I'm like, whoa, this like sounds completely different. Um, so how does that process work for you? Do you like submit a song to show that you're, you're remaining faithful or? Well, uh the the guy in charge of the music when we first started working on this is named Bruce Pomahawk, and we had a pretty collaborative meeting at the very beginning of the process where we established uh, an agreed approach, which is that we were going to preserve the musical architecture, melody, harmony, and rhythm, mm-hmm. uh, and we really didn't um, <laughs> stray from that ever uh, at. You know, when you're when you're doing any kind of interpretive work, it's important to know what variables are fixed and which ones aren't. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you know, it, it just it helps uh, keep the decision making process moving forward. Mm-hmm. So we we agreed from the beginning that there would be a pretty uh, faithful approach to melody and harmony. And but he also said from the very beginning. You know, it makes total sense to imagine this set on a back porch, and you should think of any instrument that like would exist at the time that the story is set. Mm-hmm. Um, so the estate was excited about the, I, I, you know, the idea of like featuring a banjo or harmonica. Um, so, yeah, we had a pretty simpatico approach from with them at the beginning, mm-hmm. and then I would submit scores and and get into the weeds with them. So how then did the, I mean, I think the element of amplification that's part of the score is is so central to, A, the whole mood, and and that seems maybe like something that didn't exist back in the 1940s with the electric guitar and, and all of the, the microphone moments. Um, so how did that kind of get worked in? Right. Yeah, the Dream Ballet is the exception to the approach. Mm-hmm. Um, when we did it at Bard... There was a, a version of the ballet in which Curly came out and played the electric guitar live. Mm-hmm. And Ew, interesting thought. So it was born out of a, a, a rock performance thing for Curly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then that, and that was really exciting. Um, mm-hmm. And it was basically Curly with an electric guitar and tons of fog. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then when we worked, when we revised it the next time, uh, I'm sorry, when when we added dance to it, uh, then we thought it would be really 
even more fantastic if the dancer worked completely alone in the space. Mm-hmm. And that's what led us to pursue uh, a version of the piece where the band wasn't physically present on stage. And then because of a bunch of other logistical issues, we couldn't pl- we couldn't play it live in the same Mm-hmm. in an offstage room. So we made a recording of it and that opened up some other possibilities. Mm-hmm. Once, you're, once you're working in the studio, mm-hmm. overdubbing electric guitars, uh, that sort of led to it. it. That had its own journey, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that's certainly one of the most memorable sounds in the show. Um, rewinding for a moment, Patrick, when, mm. you, uh, when you were first cast in this as Judd, yeah. how, like... What did you think? Did you ever think this was the kind of role that you would play? Because you are no. definitely unlike, I mean, you and, and everyone else in the show is definitely unlike what the archetypes of these characters are. Absolutely. I think, you know, I thought there must be some sort of mistake. <laughs> I, um, I was very sort of startled by it when, you know, going to seeing who was seeing the cast list on the bulletin board at college and then seeing, you know, Judd, Patrick. Um, it sort of felt like I felt sort of startled by being sort of seen. I think that Daniel saw that there were, I did have a sort of a connection to the part that was very mysterious even to me that I didn't quite understand. I was only 21 years old, so I didn't, I, you know, was it was very just sort of instinctive. And um, so I think as, you know, and as we worked on it, he very gently, very sort of coaxed me away from any preconceived notions of who this person might be because of ways he'd been depicted in the past with Rod Steiger or Schuler Hensley and, you know, getting away from um, any sort of previous interpretation and looking at the text as it was on the page and discovering it as if for the first time. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, every single day I find sort of even further connection and more depth and it's an amazing piece of writing that role just to see like it's like an onion it just keeps peeling and getting richer and bigger and more beautiful I think yeah no I I mean at least from my perspective and I don't think this is unique I think that the the sympathies of the audience Mm -hmm. are completely flipped from what they usually are and Curly kind of seems like a creep, <laughs> or yeah. more, like, or more like a creep than in the past. And and Judd is is so much more sympathetic, and mm. um, you know, he, he reminds me almost a little of Boo Radley, mm-hmm. like a little bit of like Lenny and of Mice and Men. Mm-hmm. Like I, I was getting that vibe a little bit. And um, as I said before, when I went to see the show, my boyfriend called him Judd Cobain. <laughs> he had that kind of uh, angsty. <laughs> A misunderstood feel, (laughs) Um, not only because of your hair. Um, So, so like, I mean, what was your kind of initial way into him that sort of led you to this very distinct interpretation? Yeah, I think, um, well, first of all, if you know, if you look at Lonely Room, which sort of I think is the kernel of him, I mean, he's when somebody is completely by themselves, they can actually exist as they really are. And um, in that song, he describes a dream a dream that is very positive, a dream of being loved, of being seen, of being touched, of touching, of, um, you know, he says all of the things that I wish for turn out like I want them to be. It's, I think, I think from that point of view, if you start from this place of wanting, it's like a beautiful sort of I want song. And, mm-hmm. 
that that can then lead you to pursue other avenues within the role from that place. So poor Judd is dead rather than being something that is funny or sort of spoofing, you know, let's watch this person sort of be tricked into thinking people might love him if he was dead. What if we took it very seriously? What if what if Judd actually considered killing himself? Mm-hmm. And we were forced to look at his face as he thinks about that. And, and sort of even further, you just sort of put the microscope up and this the part just keeps... It's such a human need to be seen and be held and to have connection that you sort of can't help but connect to it, I think. Completely. No, I I was going to I was going to say that poor Judd is dead completely feels horrifically sad now. And just I mean, I think that's one of the moments that most resonated with me as relevant to the moment we live in now, because it just made me think about the way that outcasts are created by society, Mm -hmm. the way that someone might think that some moment of glory is going to bring them the attention mm-hmm. that they they don't get. Um, yeah. It was kind of like Judd as like school shooter in the making. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, it mm-hmm. was just brings so much to mind. I mean, I think that moment is a perfect illustration of how I think there's a lot of juxtaposition of like the really natural and the really homey and mm-hmm. intimate in this production mm-hmm. and other moments that sort of there's not like an artificiality, but a stylized moment, whether it's singing with a microphone or the ways that lighting is used mm-hmm. um, or the way film is used in, in that particular number that make you very aware that you, you are watching a show. Yeah. Um, I was just curious what what how that resonates with the two of you in terms of the overall message and mood of the show that comes across. Well, style emerges from the function of the song Mm -hmm. dramatically so I mean I think I think that the way that we do poor Judd uh certainly touches points of alternative rock Mm -hmm. and and you can look at it that way Mm -hmm. um and I'm I'm glad that that resonates on that level of style but I think that uh you know the way we worked on it was really from a dramatic point of view Mm -hmm. and uh you know the way that it's sung is very less about making a sound on on a level of style and and Mm -hmm. just about the way they express the moment to each other Mm -hmm. and uh i mean i think that's you always get the best results singing when you're telling the truth as opposed to trying to make a sound Mm -hmm. um and the same is true with the guitar playing. You know, he's essentially just covering as much of the musical detail as he can on the guitar heroically. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? As, opposed to, as opposed to reducing it to power chords or something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, does that make does that answer yeah, your question? Yeah, totally. I mean, I'm curious for you, Patrick, how yeah. that filming experience just changes your performance because yeah. the the degree of emotion that we see on your face is, is really startling mm. and you I you presumably are just thinking about delivering a good vocal performance too in the same moment. <laughs> oh yeah, the vocal performance often feels like I'm scrambling to sort of try and keep some semblance of what Dan's built. Um and but yeah, it's what's funny about it is because it is essentially sort of like a 5-minute close-up. Um it, it's a literally different set of muscles um than you use when you're working in 
the round as we do. And, you know, so it's a real luxury to sort of suddenly have a handheld mic really close and be able to have the smallest sort of flicker of an eyelid sort of open up whatever, you know, might be going on. Um, but I would say that a lot, yeah, a lot of that is just, um, for me, is very born out of the music. I think that hearing the music the way that it is in this way, which is, it feels as if for the first time, it's like some tune you think you know, or or it feels familiar in some way, and yet it is, every song feels like a discovery of something. And as an actor, it's the easiest thing in the world is to get transported on that sort of wave that the sound gives you and these orchestrations that are I mean essentially they are 50% of what's going on up there I think yeah I agree and and I'm also curious how that kind of how these kind of orchestrations help actors who are maybe not what we think of as classic Mm. Rodgers and Hammerstein um Performers, you know, I think of a Rodgers and Hammerstein show as having like the archetypal, like, you know, soprano and mm-hmm. um, an almost operatic tenor, you yeah. know. And uh, everyone in the show has a wonderful voice, but I, I mean, you're all performers who can kind of easily segue between the pop and rock world and theater. Um, and it seems to me that the arrangements must be really important to, to making you feel like you can sing as yourself and not like you have to reach some predetermined level of, of mm. what singing Roger and Hammerstein means. Yeah, it's all coming from the same ethic mm. that informs the production, whether it's uh, the music or, or, or um, approaches to acting and performance, which is that, um, I mean, people call it, people say it's stripped down, but really I think um, on a purely technical level, when you do a, a reduction of an orchestration, you're just trying to figure out what you can, in, can include with, it's a lot of problem solving, mm-hmm. and you're trying to inc- mm-hmm. figure out what you can cover with the small band that you have. So the ethic becomes something where instead, some lines that would be really sweeping and lyrical with a section of musicians mm-hmm. um, are really exposed and have to be... Um, there's nothing to hide behind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the writing is so strong that it can withstand that kind of uh, examination and nakedness. Does that make sense? Yeah. You, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> I was going to say that yeah. I don't think of it as, I mean, I came into the show hearing like it was the stripped down Oklahoma. Yeah. And it didn't feel that way to me. I mean, I think that, like, yes, the band is physically smaller than a full orchestra mm-hmm. pit, but it, there, there's still a very rich sound that fills the theater. It doesn't feel like you explicitly tried to do it with, like, a string trio <laughs> instead of Right. It's not about making it smaller. Yeah. yeah. Uh, just, what make, I, just making it different, I think. What I love about it is that we, we – I mean, I've listened to many different recordings of the show. What I love about what we've done is that uh, – I feel like I notice a lot, it could be that just that I spent a lot of time with it, but I feel like I notice a lot of inner voicings and counterpoint and detail that sometimes is obscured in the orchestral texture mm-hmm. because there's so much going on. Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah, you definitely hear like specific lines much more visibly. Yeah, I sort of like to say when people that it's not stripped down, that it's more stripped bare, that mm-hmm. it feels you can you actually get to see the tendons and the bones and 
all of that that's in the score and in the text as well. I think both text and score sort of withstand this scrutiny really beautifully. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of scrutiny, um, (laughs) there's coming out of the show, I felt like I wanted to talk about it for days. There's like so much to process. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering when when you first started working on it and the the process of of what I've heard of as investigating the text um, began, what were kind of the central themes, the central ideas that, that you first started working with as kind of the way that everybody thought of the show, thought of the characters, um, what you wanted to kind of bring into relief that maybe hasn't been so much before? Mm. You know, I don't really know. I think that um, for me, I spent, I sort of did worked very quietly on it. I think sort of Daniel and I had, our director, Daniel Fish, and I had... Um, just a very almost sometimes wordless dialogue about what was right, what was working, what to work on, how what to pull out. And sort of he would say, it should have a little, and without him saying anything, I'd say, oh, okay. And <laughs> I don't know that maybe we were on the different page, but, you know, eventually we sort of would figure something out. Um, yeah, I think that, you know, in terms of the themes and everything, they sort of write themselves. I mean, this this the book and the score are so strong that you know you can do this play as we did in 2015 where in the first week the supreme court passed um you know uh, same sex marriage and when curly has that line at the end where he says country's change and got to change with it it had this sense of hope of mm. excitement of our country and whereas on the first preview that we had at St. Anne's last fall was um, uh, Christine Blasey Ford's testimony um, uh, on Kavanaugh was the exact same day as that. And so the country's changing, got to change with it, had took on an entirely new meaning. And with every single day, this play sort of shifts and morphs into an examination of our country. So I think that sort of the themes sort of just come, I think. Yeah, it's a whole... I f- in. in- <clears throat> And the story takes place over like 24 hours. Right? I know. That's insane. That's In a really, <laughs> really concise, pretty tight story, it reflects back mm-hmm. the whole ethical system of this town yeah. as, a, as a mirror to our country. Yeah. I, completely, I, I mean, the, the box social alone, which I'm uh, like, is a lot to process. And, yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> um, not, not least because it's very clear that it is not lunches that are being optioned off. Yeah. Um, how I'm curious what your interpretation of that scene in particular is for the, the poor ladies involved. Oh, yeah. I mean, I remember Daniel sitting us all down as a cast saying, I am a man. I would like to hear from the women. Uh, mm-hmm. about what they think, how, what we should be leaning into, what um, is what they, what they think. And so a lot of that was, you know, that was a big discussion. And it's, but I think that you sort of play the text and you look at what the words are and rather than try and cut out the bad parts of the apple to make it palatable, you show the, the bruises, you show the soft, mealy parts to, to show this is the truth, this is what happens, you know. I think, you know, problems of problems within this country that have not been solved doesn't mean they shouldn't be investigated dramatically, I think. Completely. Yeah. Now, I was going to say that, you know, I, I think that 
Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals and the mm. dark things that they really don't shy away from have come up on this podcast, mm. you know, before with relation to whether it's like The King and I or South mm. Pacific, um, mm. you know, that these are... It's funny to me that these are musicals that we think of as like the classic big, bright Broadway musical, right? but yeah. there's really, you know, dark stuff about human beings and mm-hmm. about our country that that we get into with their shows. Um, I had never, I, I had the strange experience of I've never seen a stage production of Oklahoma before this one. Yeah. I had seen, you know, the movie and... Um, Watching the movie clips after seeing this, I just almost felt like I couldn't go back. Mm. It just felt like reading a really old history book that yeah. leaves out all the real stuff, sort of. Yeah, absolutely. Very strange. I mean, what did before you started working on the show, like, what did you know of Oklahoma? What did you mm. think of it as a show? Was it a show you ever thought you would work on in <laughs> any way? Or were you like, ah, oh, that's not really for me? Uh, I didn't have a strong relationship to it. Besides the songs that I would just say everybody knows. Uh, But I think, you know, I grew up playing jazz piano and had a... Though I didn't know this show very well, I spent so much time playing standards and the, you know, the golden age canon that has informed the rest of the 20th century music. And so... You know, I immediately fell in love with the harmonies and um, yeah, I, I was fortunate that I didn't come to it with any preconceived style notions, but just like on, on a on a music nerd level, an, an interest in in the DNA of how the music was written. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really amazing to spend so much time with it and then and knowing all of the songs that were written after 1943 that were influenced by this material mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that were so important to me. So that makes sense. It's like, I don't know, sort of yeah, meet, yeah, yeah. meeting an older relative that mm-hmm. you didn't know. Yeah, I mean, has, mm-hmm. has working on the orchestrations for the show made you hear particular other shows or particular songs differently in a big way? Yeah, you know, certainly, like the the chord changes and people will say we're in love are so deceptively mm-hmm. magical and and uh, I don't know they've just can every time I hear that song it teaches me a little bit about modulation and and. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Uh. Totally. I think I get that a lot with the score. I think that hearing it in this way, you sort of, it's sort of like, it's Jimi Hendrix did the national anthem with the electric guitar, right? That's like that thing. That's sort of what this feels like is that all of a sudden you look at something in a new light and it reveals so much more of itself that, Mm. and you see what the amazing thing that they did, that they, that, that Rogers created with this score is like freaking mind blowing. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Yeah, Patrick, had, what was your Oklahoma oh. opinion before the show came along? Well, I mean, I had this sort of cultural sort of awareness of Oklahoma that I think most Americans do of sort of knowing these songs but not knowing how you know them mm-hmm. just because mm-hmm. they're everywhere and always have been. Um, so I think my first like exposure of ever seeing the show was I think the PBS broadcast of the National Theater production with Hugh Jackman mm-hmm. from '98. Um, so that was the first time I ever saw it, but I knew the score, and um, but I've never seen it on stage. I've only done this production of it. Um, but I remember in particular, I think in college, you know, somebody's dorm room watching the Dream Ballet in probably like sophomore year and watching the Dream Ballet from the movie and being completely like blown out of my mind by A, what was going on musically with it and what they were doing, but also, mm-hmm. you know, the camera work, the choreography and the sort of psychosexual stuff that was going on being examined in, oh God, I can't remember the, the year the movie came out. I want to say like 54 or something like that, but Ish, I'm yes. <laughs> probably wrong. But, um, but thinking that that was, that that was being examined in this was so cool and yeah, I mean, I think the piece has a lot to say about sexual politics, about human interaction politics, all of that. It's, there's so much there. Yeah. Completely. Mm-hmm. Having now done this show for many, many years, um, I'm curious whether you think that the approach to this show is something that could work for other shows, is, is maybe a good way to approach these quote-unquote classic musicals mm. as we go, as we advance into an, an ever more modern era. Um, and the, you know, while the score and the story may be amazing, there are elements of it that sort of need to be thought about differently mm. in contemporary times, or or does it all feel just very specific to this particular story to you? Mm. You know, Daniel Fish has been working this way with lots of material for years. I mm. mean, I've done a handful of other plays with him before this. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a really fantastic way of, of working with material that has a kind of history and mm-hmm. and uh, loaded set of associations with it. Um, obviously, he's done a lot of Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did a, a production of Sam Shepard's Buried Child uh, that sticks in my memory. But basically, by by allowing the performers to be both a character and an actor at the Mm -hmm. same time and by 
simplify. I, I would say simplifying the approach to the text, but also um, uh, but infusing the approach with with um, uh, new questions. Mm-hmm. It allows you to experience the vitality of the writing, but also your historical distance from the material at the same time. Mm-hmm. So whereas, you know, um, I think one path you can go down when you do a revival is to try to update the material mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and try to twist it to conform to our world now. And we take exactly the complete opposite approach, which is to say, I'm not going to change a word. What's revealed, I think, when you're listening carefully is... You're, you're aware that this material has history and the influence that it's had over the decades is something that you can feel if in layers as you listen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a valid way to approach any classic work. 100%, yeah. I think, yeah, I, sort of going back to what I was saying about like the, cutting the bad parts of the apple out, it sort of, you know, does say like Wuthering Heights have sort of weirdly troubling um, relationships between men and women that would now be considered like ha- be much more complicated or problematic. Absolutely, but we still teach it in schools because, like literature, you can apply it to your life as it is now without changing it. You you look at it with the time that's gone by, and you look at it for what it is and for what it's saying. And you, I mean, these people were smart. They were saying a lot at that time. It just wasn't maybe getting noticed or it wasn't being played for the ki- in the kind of way that it needs to be played now to be heard mm. in that way. Because um, I think this play is insanely relevant and we have not changed a word. Um, yeah, is it fair to say that relevance yeah. comes through without needing to deal with any sort of altering any circumstances of the fiction? Totally. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. No, completely. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm curious, Patrick, as an actor, mm. this seems like the kind of show after which you might think differently about <laughs> the kinds of roles you can play, the kinds mm. of shows you want to do. Has, yeah. has it done that for you? You know, it's funny. And I think that in 2007, Daniel casting me in this role was the best thing that could have ever happened to a 21-year-old um, would-be actor because I desperately wanted to play Curly. I thought, well, I'm blonde. And I would like to be liked. I wanted to be the kind of person that would get cast as that. And mm-hmm. Daniel sort of showed me um, that I could do something different, that different than what I ever thought I knew how to do. And um, I would, yeah, so I think that this role in playing this person opens up an entire avenue of curiosity for me and always has of looking at things that people thought was one thing and thinking, well, it could also be this maybe. And it's taught me to sort of trust my own instincts, but also, um, you know, working with him has really taught me how to be directed, how to be guided, and, you know, it's taught me a lot about trust and about, you know, how to be an artist, so, yeah. And how to be Ratchet Jet. <laughs> Most importantly. Yes. Well, thank you guys so much for coming in the rain. Thanks for having oh, us. And having the us. show was just amazing.
It's a tale of two Rebeccas. <laughs> Finally. This is how I want to do every podcast. Only Rebeccas from now on. <laughs> this is a special moment for me. Um, well, I'm happy to see you. I'm really happy to see you too. <laughs> um, I want to start by talking about something that Patrick said, which was that he said that at an early rehearsal, Daniel Fish sat down and the first thing he said was, I want to hear from the women. And I didn't know if that was the very first rehearsal or just early in the process, but I would love to hear about that moment and sort of what was discussed. Yeah, Daniel's really great about that. And he has been from the beginning of this process. I'm not sure if I recall um, that he posed this question to the women the first day. It probably wasn't the first day because I would say about half of the cast was new. I, I think that what Patrick is referring to is a conversation we had at St. Anne's mm-hmm. for the previous production. Um, and so I think it was at least a couple of weeks into rehearsal. And um, I feel like in general it has been really important for Daniel to really take the time and energy and and to take purposeful focus for what the women want and what the women are thinking and what the women are feeling in this production and in this community that we're depicting in this version of Oklahoma. And so um, I think throughout the process, really, he has had many check-ins with us, both individually and altogether, um, just to see what we're thinking, feeling about various moments throughout the process, even... um, uh, a couple of months ago when we were still in previews, it was towards the end of our preview process before we opened, he called me one day to ask about a specific moment in the dream ballet that I'm not in. It was something affecting Gabrielle Hamilton, who's our amazing lead dancer, our dream Lori, if you will. <laughs> and um, and he was asking me about a moment in the ballet that he was depicting um, something that he's added some sort of surveillance video footage to Mm -hmm. for this Broadway production. And he was asking my opinion about it and if it worked the way he was intending it to work or if it took away from Gabby because it's really of utmost importance for him to to focus on the women's story. No, I realize that, I mean, obviously the way I see a show will always be from a woman's perspective, (laughs) but I think that the concept of the characters, of all the characters, male and female, that you walk away with are very much through a female gaze. Um, And the reason you see Curly and Judd, especially in, I think, a totally different light from before is because you're seeing them through a woman's eyes. And that's like, I don't know, it didn't dawn on me until this moment. Yeah, (laughs) I think so, too. I think Daniel has done a really good job of of sort of teasing out what the women want in this production and what the women feel. And I think that's especially, um, I don't know, that's that's an especially large feat in my mind because he, because this text really has so much more material for the men in a lot of, I would say for, for, for the most part. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think Daniel has just done a really, masterful job of making sure that we we women get our focus. Before you entered the show, what did you think about Oklahoma? Oh my did gosh. Did you think about Oklahoma? Uh, I didn't think about Oklahoma much, I'll be honest with you. I knew some of the songs. I mean, sort of. You know, I knew 
Oklahoma, sort of. Mm-hmm. I knew I can't say no, sort of, because actually so inappropriately, I remembered so many little girls like in summer camp singing that for auditions and, you know, concerts. And now uh, I'm like, that is gross. Yeah, ew. I mean, uh. in a way, I'm of two minds about it. Like part of me is like, well, I guess that could be cool if it's like, empowerment version but it definitely at the time didn't feel like that it just yeah, felt maybe like not for sexy, like an eight-year-old sexy time yeah it's it's kind of gross um but that's kind of all I knew really or or as as far as I thought I knew and when I was first given my audition notice from my agents I laughed and I was kind of rolled my eyes because I was like nobody's gonna cast me in Oklahoma and I was also like I don't think I want to be in Oklahoma like that just doesn't sound like my bag yeah um Mostly because, not because I poo-poo the classics, the quote-unquote classics at all, more just because I um, I think that if someone's going to plug me into a classic, they're going to try to make me into a robot and not a creative person. And I don't want to have to just sort of color within the lines and do the exact same thing somebody else does or somebody else did and sing it the same exact way, have vibrato on this exact beat and, you know, sort of be just like the plug and play, um, you know, ethnic choice. (laughs) Um, And so and so I was just like, this doesn't sound like fun at all. Um, I want to create. I want to create. And then I saw that it was happening at St. Anne's Warehouse, which I know to be a theater that is always doing risky choices and and doing art with a capital A. And and then I also saw... um, that the production had happened before and I looked up photos and saw that Damon had done it before and Amber had done it before and I was like, oh, people I know who are like left of center for theater actors have done this production. And I was like, so this this has got to be something different. So, um, yeah, and then I, I listened to Many a New Day and I looked at the lyrics and I was like, oh, I've never really heard these lyrics they are so good and so sharp and so strong and this character is so clever um so I think I just learned a lot really quickly from taking another look at the text and Mm -hmm. and and then sort of you know accidentally fell deeply in love with Daniel Fish's vision (laughs) now I I feel like you know when when a show or, or even just a song is completely reinvented, it usually works best when everything is there to begin with and maybe just hasn't been dug into sufficiently before. Agreed. And I feel like that's true of like a lot of kind of classic American songbook songs that like you're used to hearing as a, you know, straightforward romantic song, but it's actually really dark and sad. And it seems like with a lot of Rogers and Hammerstein, there's so much more there than is sometimes brought out in a production. I completely agree with you. And I completely agree with you in the general sense, too. I think so many of these old songs are classics because they are bulletproof. They are so well-written. They're so clever. Um, there's not a lot of fat on them, you know? It's mm-hmm. like they, they are so direct, and yet they're layered just enough. And And I agree with you. I think if you go back and look at them, some of them are really dark, and much more than just a sweet romantic ditty, um, and so and so it feels like such a gift to be able to go back and sing through, you know, parse through some of these songs and these lyrics and realize how much they have to to give us and to and to um, and to educate us with, you know. I was I was curious, and maybe 
the song you mentioned, is it what your what your sort of key into Lori was that kind of gave you an idea of like the way you wanted to play her, what you wanted to focus on and kind of how she fits into the larger story? Yes, I would totally say that um, that working on Many a New Day for my auditions was um, was was the big sort of eye opening moment for me of how I, Rebecca, could make sense of playing this character, Lori Williams, who I would never have thought of myself um, as a fit for this role before. And I think, um, yeah, the lyrics were just so strong and smart and clever and funny. Um, They're really funny. I mean, I just think they're really sassy in a way. And I don't mean sassy in the way that people toss that word around, but they're like, they're, they're full of confidence. And um, I had sort of always thought of that song as being sort of like a washerwoman-y, like toss-off, you know, like... That's such a true thing, the washerwoman-y. <laughs> the song you sing while you're folding clothing. Yeah, totally, and yes. totally. Oh, my God. I mean, I think in the movie, it's like that. It's like, you know, there's like hanging things on clotheslines or something. Oh God, it's, it's not that. It's such a thing. It's packing the lunch boxes or something. But yeah, it's such a thing. It's such a thing. Um but, you know, then I think about it like, you know, sort of like I'm going to wash that man right out of my hair. But then I'm like, well, that's a really cool song, too. Yeah. We just don't always think about about all that they have packed into them, into those songs. But anyway, yeah, Many New Day, I just I fell so deeply in love with the lyrics. And I loved that for my audition, I was being told, and I think everybody auditioning was being told, to interpret these songs in ways that felt appropriate to our voices and to who we we are as singers and actors. Mm-hmm. And so um, we could sing them in any key we wanted and in any sort of vocal style we wanted as long as it didn't feel like traditional musical theater. I was like, okay, I'm game for that exercise. Mm-hmm. And to me, it felt like like ballsy dame. Like it felt like, um, uh, what's her name? Um, oh, come on, Rebecca. It felt like, um, oh, oh, come on. Um, I can name some ballsy dames. Yeah, name some ballsy like dames. Ethel, Ethel Merman. No, or... less, less brassy, like um, sort of like 1940s. Um, what is that song that I love? Uh, I'm going to love you like nobody loves you. Come rain or come shine. Anyway, I'm thinking of like those, you know, those old sort of ballsy dames who just would. Um... I'm going to Google. Okay, Google. While we Google. talk, yes. Yeah. Um, I, always, I always actually name her when I'm talking about this. So it's funny that I can't think of her name. Get out of the money. I'm gonna love you come rain or come shine anyway just like you know sort of a like ballsy dame like I'm talking about how heartbroken I am and how some man has done me wrong and we all know that I'm sad about it but I'm making the choice to you know keep it moving and and take the high road and take the the role of I'm strong. I don't care. Mm-hmm. And um, and I don't know. I just I that's how that's how these lyrics spoke to me because they're because they're so smart and so funny. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, never have I asked an August sky where has last July gone. I mean, that's that's clever. So <laughs> um, yeah. So that's that to me was sort of a, a clue in to 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 Lori. And and then I look at. The text and it's all there. It's, you know, it's been a really weird journey. Like people, 
people talking about, wow, your Lori is so strong. She's got a lot of attitude. It's just so funny because to me, I'm not making that choice. To me, it's just what's there in the text. I mean, she really is giving him a run for his money in the first scene. And that to me is like, there's, I can't even look at it and think of any other way to play it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting to hear that because, I, I mean, I certainly saw her as stronger than usual. But the main thing that stood out to me was that she seems like someone who thinks. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Yeah, like I, I and I and I, I mean, I like the fact that I think you're your performance of a lot of the songs is like a little bit of a quieter take because Mm -hmm. you see her thinking, you see her contemplating what she's saying. Yes. And I feel like that's the whole point of her character is that she's kind of figuring out who she is and what she wants over the course of the show. And I think you see those gears turning in a way that feels appropriate to me. Yeah, yeah. Like she's not just like, here I am. I agree. I'm a sassy gal. Yeah. I won't stand for no crazy man. Right, exactly, exactly. That's that's the thing is I think – very often we don't actually get to see a lot of what she thinks. We get to see her feel things and be sad and be a delicate flower. But And I'm, that's not to say that anybody else hasn't done a, a fabulous job with the role. I'm just saying that, you know, the way that I see it is that we're getting to take the time to sit with what she's thinking and, and how her wheels are spinning and mm-hmm. and how she's trying to figure out and navigate what she wants and actually to make peace with what she wants. Um, and yeah, so I think, yeah, I think that manifests itself in various ways. And sometimes that's strong and sometimes that's quiet and contemplative and anyway. Um, but yeah, that, that working through that song was, was really a a helpful key Mm -hmm. in for me. I want to talk about the costumes a little bit because I I was thinking about the costumes Mm -hmm. afterwards and how, like, in subtle ways they say so much about the characters and the, like, larger roles they're playing. Like, a lot of – and, I mean, you wear one ensemble in (laughs) Act 1 and one in Act Mm 2. And in Act 1 it's sort of like a – like Western hipster, hipster chic moment, I would <laughs> yeah, say. Yeah. And then in Act Two, you have like a very, like a very like traditional two AT kind of little prairie dress that is like revealing in the right ways, right? And um, is almost like kind of Western Barbie doll kind of dress, totally. Um, and it just, I, I mean, they really drive home for me, kind of the way that you're being seen. Yep. Um, so I was just curious to hear your take on on how that affects your performance. I think you're so right. I mean, I think in Act One, I'm, as you said, I'm in sort of a Western hipster outfit. I'm wearing really cool form-fitting jeans with cowboy boots and a button-up shirt over a tank top. And the tank top is tight, but you can't really tell because I'm wearing this sort of slightly oversized button-up shirt. And it's it's actually a lot of my body body is covered, even though you can Mm. sort of see, you know, my curves from the jeans. But it's, you know, I'm really like, it feels very strong and very protected and, um, and I don't know, just it feels like a, like a, an outfit that is um, suited up. Mm-hmm. And and I think that does affect how I move within the space and how, how I feel like I can own the space that I walk through. And then for Act 2, when I'm wearing this little 
you know, typical Western prairie Barbie doll dress, as you said. Um, I mean, it's cute. But... It is cute. It's so cute. But it completely changes everything. I have, like, um, exposed legs and exposed arms. And, um, you know, and the dress is it's sort of, like, tailored to sort of show more of the body. And, and all of the women are wearing dresses like that um, in the second act. And there is something that happens to you when you have – an outfit like that on and it's also got a flouncy petticoat and it just feels more vulnerable and mm-hmm. um and it feels like i have fewer choices um and particularly in the scene where um we're auctioning off our lunch baskets um and i there's a whole scene where you know my basket's being auctioned off and the men are bidding and I'm standing there in this And it's dress. super creepy. And it's, you know, yeah, it's um, it's very vulnerable and, um, you know, leaves a bad taste in my mouth. And, and in ours as well. And in, our, in yours, yeah. You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> we know that lunch is not what's being auctioned yeah, off, yeah. So, to put it mildly. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I mean, it seemed to me like, you know, Act 1 is where Lori is really giving curly a fight mm-hmm. and act two is where for whatever reason whether out of fear or purely out of love I don't know she decides to take the more expected yeah. path mm-hmm. um and I was curious I mean are you are you happy with how things end for her in this production or how do you see her her final decision oh man I think it's so complicated and what of poor Judd and what of poor Judd yeah I think um I think First of all, I will say that depending on the night, my decision to make what I would call the safer choice um, comes to me for different reasons. (laughs) There are nights when it comes to me out of fear. There are nights when it comes to me out of the feeling that there's no other choice that I am allowed to make. Mm -hmm. And there are nights when it comes to me out of pure love and uh, relief that this person that I love so deeply and have loved for so long and have this intense chemistry with, that this person has finally shown me that they feel the same way. And there are days when it comes to me out of um, out of sort of the fear of the previous scene and feeling like I, I will be safe with this person. And um, And so... The decision to be with him is different often, but but it is always it it is always fueled with a love that I do have for Curly, mm-hmm. um, and and it is also always fueled with what has transpired in the previous scene with Judd, in which something has happened between us that we both consented to, and then I decided it had gone too far for me, and Judd decided that that was no longer okay. Mm-hmm. And and then I feel for threatened and I fire him and and that's sort of the beginning of the end. Mm-hmm. Um and so and so by the end of the play um with what happens to Judd particularly in our production I think all of those factors um you know, feature into how I feel at the end of the play and how I feel about my choices and what I've done. Um, I think ultimately, I don't know if Lori 
makes the right decision. I don't know if she has a right decision. Mm-hmm. You know, um, unfortunately, I feel like she she has entirely too limited a set of choices and options. I think Lori wishes she could go to Kansas City and experience all of those new things uh, that that Will Parker gets to experience. And I think she wonders what else is out there, you know, beyond this territory and this small group of people. But yeah, I think it's going to be a, a tricky life for, for she and Curly. Yes. <laughs> They wander into the blood-spattered future. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I know. That sequel would be something else. Yeah. Well, (laughs) meanwhile, I I mean, I feel like I've heard lots of nicknames for this Oklahoma, Mm -hmm. including Woklahoma (laughs) and, like, sexy Oklahoma. Uh But I feel like it's, like, Oklahoma, it's a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's not untrue. It's just a lot. It's It's a lot lot to emotionally take and a lot, a lot to think about. Yeah. Somebody on on Instagram like a month ago said something that I loved so much, which was um, Oklahoma is America. Oh, shoot. Oh, my God. Of course, I'm going to not remember this, too. (laughs) It was something like America as horror satire. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. That, too. (laughs) Well, on that note, everyone should go to Oklahoma. <laughs> it's also really fun at times, yes. and it is sexy. Yay. Well, keep at it, and thanks for coming by. Thank you. Yay. And all of the things that I wish for turn out like I want them to be. And I'm better than that smart Alec Cowhand who thinks he's better than me. Oklahoma is at the Circle in the Square Theater on Broadway for a limited engagement through January of 2020, and it is now nominated for eight Tony Awards, including Best Revival of a Musical and for Daniel Kluger Best Orchestrations. If you like the Billboard on Broadway podcast, please subscribe on iTunes and leave a nice review or some stars. If you would like to find us on other platforms, we're on Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, among others. You can always find me on social media at Rebecca Milzoff on Twitter, at YaDownWithRMM on Instagram, and you can use hashtag Billboard on Broadway to express your feelings about the podcast. Hope to have you back next week. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.